Hope you all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> Actually doing a, uh, just a shorter text today. We're going to finish up Acts chapter 15. So start at verse 36. Start at verse 36. And it is, an, uh, without a doubt, uh, a weird kind of text. And, prove, and can prove to be somewhat of an awkward conversation. So I've been uh, thinking about it the whole week and thinking to myself, well, I guess this is what we're going to do. This is the kind of ter- uh, talk whenever sermon whenever you're uh, preaching through books of the Bible that you're just like, well, I guess I'm preaching the books of the Bible. I have to talk about this. But it's not, thing, not the thing I would choose to talk about. I would rather do something else. So anyway, uh, I'm going to read it and then we'll pray and then we'll look at it. So... Uh, Paul and Barnabas, Uh, if you see verse 36, you'll see that there's a separation between the two, a separation. So look, starting at verse 36. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That's basically, let's go back and do that first missionary journey and see how everybody's doing. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the to the work and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus and Paul chose Silas and departed and having been commended by the brothers to the grace to the grace of the Lord and he went through Syria and Cilicia strengthening the churches let's pray Lord we uh we thank you for your word. We know that every word of it is God-breathed. Every word of it is from you. Every word of it is meant to uh, teach us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Help us understand the big picture of the gospel. And so we pray this morning that this text would be no different. And we pray that uh, <clears throat> you would use it mightily in our church. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So perhaps you've heard before, I remember the first time I ever heard this, someone used the phrase, a Paul and Barnabas moment. Uh, I think we're having a Paul and Barnabas moment. And I know what that meant when I first heard it. And I thought, what what does that even mean? And so uh, it was back whenever, I I think I was in high school, maybe in college, and I I didn't really read the Bible. No one really ever told me to. (laughs) I didn't grow up in a church that emphasized reading the Bible. So I didn't know what it meant. And so I looked at it. And I thought that the, the spirit of it didn't sound right, didn't sound the way that it should go. So a Paul and Barnabas moment is what's happening here. Um, and this is a, uh, a popular phrase that's kind of happened in Christianity mostly. This is what it does, though. When you say we're having a Paul and Barnabas moment, it defines a disagreement. It defines a disagreement. So the definition of that's happening in a Paul and Barnabas moment is where there is no... Uh, where people could go either direction, and there's no seeming fault here. It's just an honest disagreement whether either decision could be right or wrong. So it's not the same as necessarily as a conflict where someone's right or wrong. This is a Paul and Barnabas moment. So uh, they, Paul wants to take, wants to go on this first missionary journey, of which uh, Barnabas seems to agree. That's a good thing. But Barnabas, who's... John Mark's uncle wants to take John Mark with him. And Paul says, I don't want to take him. And so they have a disagreement on whether he should go or not. Which one's right? We don't know. I don't think there's really a way that we can determine who's right, who's wrong here. And that's why it's the, the, the defined the Paul and Barnabas moment, which is we, 
we think either one's right, and we honestly are going to agree to disagree here. And so we're just going to go and do two separate things in what we're going to do. So it's not the exact same as a conflict, because both options seem right. But this particular moment in church history is a big deal, because the dream team is breaking up. <laughs> the dream team is no longer together. The, the uh, relational encouragement kind of person of Barnabas and who he is, just this amazing guy, coupled with the type A, law, knowledge, go-get-it personality of Paul, those two together were seemingly an unstoppable force on that first missionary journey. And they, uh, they were really used by the Lord. And in this particular moment, the dream team is breaking up. And if you remember back in Acts chapter 11, whenever the church at Antioch was being... Uh, planted with the help of Barnabas, Barnabas, the humble Barnabas said, you know who I need? I need to get a guy named Saul that I, I saw come to, come to faith in Acts chapter nine. And I'm going to bring him over there because he's quite intelligent and he can come over here and he can help me plant this church. And it even says in verse 26 for a whole year, they stayed there and they, they taught the church and a great many people came to know Christ. So in a lot of ways, Barnabas discipled Paul into the man he is. And then there is this, you know, here's Barnabas and here's Saul, and he discipled him into where there was an ascension to where no longer does the book of Acts even say Barnabas and Saul, but now says Paul and Barnabas. And so there's an ascension, what seems to be a power and notoriety and, and uh, understanding of who Paul is, even in, as we read the book of Acts. And so maybe, maybe John Mark didn't like that. We don't know exactly in Acts chapter 13, 13, what caused him during that first missionary journey to withdraw. If you read in Acts 13, this is when they started their first missionary journey. As you get to verse 13, it said, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on to Perga. Now, now Luke, as he writes, um, gracious Luke doesn't give us the nature at all of why John Mark left. It could be he was tired. It could be that there was a death in the family. It could be he just missed his mama. It could be, it could be, a whole, it could be that he was just a rich kid and um, just didn't like the work. I mean, we don't know. We honestly don't know. But we do know is that leaving made Paul think, I can't trust the kid. I can't trust the kid to do the work. And so <clears throat> when we get to where we are in Acts chapter 15, where they're going to go do all of the missionary journey again, in which Barnabas is in absolute agreement with this. If you read it again, verse 36, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. That, verse 37, now Barnabas wanted to take with them John. So we can, we can deduce from that that Barnabas was in absolute agreement on that. So the nature of the disagreement wasn't going and seeing people. Instead, it was on bring the nature of the disagreement was bringing John Mark with them, bringing John Mark with them. And we see in verse 41 that Paul does that very thing. The thing he decided to do, let's go kind of retrace that first missionary journey, find the people that we made Christians. You can see in verse 41, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. He does that. So that's clearly what the Lord wanted. Um, And also, just as a a side note for us all to think about, um, Paul is teaching us a good principle about discipleship that uh, if you lead someone to Christ, the follow-up work of leading uh, after you've led them to Christ and discipling them is an important piece. And Paul sees that as important, and we should do it. So it, it doesn't mean we'll <laughs> make sure I don't lead anybody to Christ so I don't have to do any follow-up, follow-up and discipleship because that seems a lot of like, like extra work. 
it means lead people to Christ. And after you do that, as even Baptists especially have kind of been known to, we, we go on our mission trips, we get them saved, or we, we go do the hard work in the city to people we never see again and lead them to Christ. And then, all right, somebody will take care of that. Instead, I think uh, a better way for discipleship, for evangelism, is people we know, people that we're going to see later, so that we will do follow-up and actually, all right, now we're going to walk through the book of John together. Right? Now we're going to walk through the book of Romans together or whatever. Matthew, whatever you pick. It doesn't have to be a gospel or Romans. But Paul's given us a, a good indication of what's, what's needed whenever we do discipleship. That we should do uh, follow-up with them and disciple them. Much in the way that Barnabas did with Saul. He was kind of part of his life for that first long part. So, uh, now... The nature of the disagreement shows us, rears its head here in verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. This is, this is Mark. This is the writer of the New Testament. So let's just go ahead and say that we have to deduce that Mark, Mark, Mark comes around. There's at some point where Mark, if, if it was because he was so young and he just couldn't handle Paul's go-get-him attitude, and when they split here and Barnabas does more discipling with him, there's at some point where Mark comes around. I mean, he writes a, a gospel. <laughs> so he, he does get it together. If it was that he left in Mark 13, 13, just out of immaturity. Um, it might not have been immaturity. It might have just been, you know, that he uh, had told him from the beginning, I got to go with you just for a little bit and I got to get back. We don't really know why he left. But we do know that he eventually comes around if God uses him to write the second gospel. Presumably, if you believe in Mark in priority, the first gospel. Um, Matthew, Luke, and John could have been written after Mark. Mark got his gospel, by the way, firsthand from Peter. That's just a side note. All right, so back to 37, the nature of the, of the disagreement. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. Uh, and as we've read in Acts 13, 13, it's the, the disagreement beca- comes because he left them in the first missionary journey. He deserted them. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them and Pamphylia and not gone with them to do the work. So, gracious Luke here still isn't giving us much. He's, he's not, not telling us much, but he does think, at least from Paul's perspective, that uh, there was some kind of can't-hack-itness about, about uh, Mark, John Mark at this particular time, to where when they go do it again, he thinks it's just going to happen again. And he doesn't want to take him. And so... Uh, at this particular point, Paul, being the, maybe the less forgiving kind of guy than Barnabas, thinks they shouldn't take John Mark. We shouldn't take him. We don't need to take him. Now, we can all understand, I think, both sides of this. Perhaps you've been the, uh, the one that endured in some kind of situation. There's been something really difficult. There's been really something hard. And you, like... People are dropping off flies and quitting like crazy. And they're like, this is too hard. This is too much. Uh, and you're like, no, I'm going to endure. I'm going to go through this no matter what. Whether, it, whether it's been a degree program or, or whatever. I mean, you, you've had all kinds of sports. Whenever you're in high school, everybody's dropping off during like, maybe football two-a-days. I don't know, something. There's been something where everybody's kind of waning off. And you're like, I'm going to endure. I'm going to be that, the one that doesn't quit. And whenever I'm the one that doesn't quit, if these other people want to join the party later, you're like, hey, you quit. Or perhaps you've been the one that has quit whenever something was, was difficult and everybody seems to be enduring and you're like, this is too hard. And whenever you want to come back, you want grace. You want, you want someone to be kind to you like Barnabas and say, let me, let me rejoin. I, I've got it this time. So I think we can understand 
both parts of this. We've both been on the enduring side and we've both been on the quitting side, likely because we're human in our life. Or we've pushed through and, and got it done like Paul or like John Mark. We've, we've wanted another chance. We wanted a chance to prove ourselves. And so as we look at this, <clears throat> I think that we can look at this Paul and Barnabas moment and say, I can understand both sides and I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer of which one was right. Maybe Paul was right because it's tough work and he can really mess up their witness and withdrawing messes up the plans. Or maybe Barnabas is right. Let's give him another chance. If you just look at the New Testament, you can make a historical guess, just the history of the way the Bible is written because Luke follows the narrative of Paul, not Barnabas. And so you can make a guess that says, well... I guess Paul was right since it doesn't, whenever they split here, Barnabas just fades out of biblical history and we get more stuff about Paul. So maybe Paul was right. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily right. So don't make the historical guess that just because we follow Paul's life, that that means that necessarily that Barnabas was wrong. I'm not saying Paul was right. I'm just saying, don't make the guess that Barnabas was wrong here. I really think there's no right. I think that either one of them could have been correct. And so there is, so, so I should say this, um, the disagreement, or the, when we're talking about Christian disagreement, I want, I want you to understand that the, the disagreement that I want to talk about isn't necessarily about, um, and how we should, do, how we should handle this and what, how it applies to us. It's not necessarily about a situation where you can do two right things. The problem in this likely is not necessarily where they're trying to figure out which way is right. It's the tone and manner in which they disagreed with each other is where we can draw our applications. Because if you look at verse 39, it says, and there arose a sharp disagreement. So the disagreement itself of whether to take John Mark or not, that's not really the problem. Because I think we can all say Barnabas is a pretty good guy and he's probably right. Paul's a pretty good guy. He wrote... A lot of the Bible, Barnabas didn't write anything. I think we can, we can take from it that either, either choice could have been right. It's the sharpness of the disagreement, the tone and manner in which they disagreed. And we're going to see, see some things that was the problem. As a matter of fact, the Greek word is parachusmos. I love it when you can do some good hoes. So this is denoting a, uh, a violent, violent action or emotion. So this was a, this was a violent disagreement. This was not a mild gentle, southern disagreement. A southern gentleman. We should just disagree here. It's not that. It's an intense, passionate conflict. And the nature of of how they disagreed is the problem. And what was the consequence? You can see. And there arose such a sharp disagreement that they separated from each other. The intensity of their disagreement, the tone and manner in which they disagreed was so sharp that the dream team split up. The amazing missionary partnership of Paul and Barnabas is coming to a close right here. It was the sharpness of the disagreement, not the disagreement itself that separated the two of them. And our first inclination is to say, who's right? Who's right? Because we want to make a judgment call of who's right here. Was it Barnabas for wanting to give his nephew a second chance? Or was it Paul for not wanting to take the chance of slowing down productivity of God's mission? Who's right? Um... Does the historical account of Acts 
shed light on which one's right since it follows Paul instead of Barnabas and Barnabas must be wrong? No, not necessarily. Barnabas fades out of biblical history and, and taking John Mark's side and Paul becomes a central figure of Acts. That doesn't necessarily mean anything. Um, did Barnabas's decision cause him to lose out? Did it cause him to lose out being used by God in the same way Paul was? It's a pretty big question, I think. Or did Paul's decision cause him to lose that on perhaps his best missionary partner that he could have had even more productivity than he had with Silas and Luke who joined him later? Our first inclination as humans is to try to make the judgment call on who is right, which may not be the right way to think about it. Um, but here, they agreed to disagree and they, separate, they go separate ways. And so right here, I think no one is necessarily right. It's a Paul and Barnabas moment. It says, Paul chose Silas and departed. So he went on that same missionary journey. And if you remember, how he knows Silas is because from the Jerusalem council, whenever he was in Antioch, he went down to Jerusalem and they decided, who are we, how are we going to deal with these Gentiles? What are we going to do with the Gentiles? Are we going to let them in? Are we not going to let them in? Do they have to play ball with us? Do they have to follow our rules? What's going to happen? And they figured out, well, Gentiles can be in. That's not a big deal. And as they allowed them in, he met Silas and the, the walk back up to Antioch to tell them the good news up in Antioch. Hey, Gentiles, <laughs> good news. You don't have to be circumcised. Oh, woo-hoo! like that big party. And so uh, he met Silas in this. And you can see um, in verse uh, 30 and following in chapter 15. So they went off and they went to Antioch and having gathered one congregation together, delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And here it is. And Judas and Silas who were with them, who was also a prophet, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch. So he had met Silas. He had seen Silas as a good guy. He understood who he was. Silas went back down to Jerusalem. And here in this particular moment, after this separation, Paul still wants to, to do the the uh, mission. And so he goes down to Jerusalem, presumably gets Silas and said, I need a partner. So that's that he gets Silas to go with him. And, and if you've read Acts chapter 16, where they're beaten up and they're thrown into jail, it's Paul and Silas that are singing hymns at midnight, not Paul and Barnabas. And so uh, that's what happens with how Silas joins them in verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and committed to the brothers. And then you see um, that Barnabas took with him Mark and sailed away to Cyprus. It says it's that in verse 39. So we have the, the dream team breaking up here in this Paul and Barnabas moment. And so as we're looking at it, I want to draw out for us four conclusions that we can make regarding Christian disagreement. Regarding Christian disagreement. So if you're uh, in the midst of a disagreement with someone that's a believer, or you've ever had one, or perhaps there's one on the horizon, there's four conclusions, and there always is. I mean, if you're married... There's one on the horizon. There's one on the horizon. You don't want one on the horizon, but there's, there's one on the horizon always. Um, so anyway, there's four conclusions I want to draw here uh, on how we as believers can think through and, be, and, and act Christianly when we have disagreements. The first one is this. Most times, it's the tone and manner in which we disagree not the actual content of the issue that causes the problem. In verse 39, they had a sharp disagreement. They had a sharp disagreement. And so this is what I want to do to uh, help us think through this. I just want to read one simple text from Ephesians chapter 4, which perhaps you've heard. I want to read one simple text. 
Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun, this is Ephesians 4, starting at verse 25. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting, this, this, is a, uh, this is a Bible memory verse at the Chamber's house. They have to have, the, anytime, there's, anytime, anytime there's any kind of uh, speaking to each other that's not kind, we make them from a long time ago, quote to us Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only, as such is, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's unpack that just for one second. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So when I speak, I don't want it to be tearing down corruption, but instead I want it to be good, but only such as good for building up. And it fits the occasion that the person that hears it, grace is given to them, not a tearing down. If you keep reading, uh, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed from the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So when we look at the tone and manner in which they disagreed, I think that we can conclude that they did not practice, which Paul would write later, this text. They did not practice this. It's the tone and manner usually about the way we disagree. Not the issue that causes the problem. Not always, but, some, but most times. The second conclusion we can draw is, uh, is this. Number two. In the midst of the disagreement, we should pray for the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us to His purpose. Kent Hughes pointed this out in his commentary as I was reading it this week. Over and over and over and over and over, in the, especially in the book of Acts. We know that the right name of the book of Acts is the Acts of the Holy Spirit, not the Acts of the Apostles. And over and over, as they're doing things, it'll say the Holy Spirit guided them. They prayed to the Holy Spirit for guidance. The Holy Spirit guided them. And this particular point, the Holy Spirit is obviously absent. Here's how he says. He says, the point here is that the relationship between two great men of God had failed. Nowhere in the account does it say that the two prayed and that it seemed good to them and the Holy Spirit for Mark to remain or for them to not have Mark, for the two of them to double their ministry and go into different directions. The omission of a harmonious conclusion indicates the unstated but undeniable failure of the two greatest souls the church has ever known, that they didn't seek the Holy Spirit here. They didn't seek the Holy Spirit. So the second principle for us when we're looking and thinking about having a Christian disagreement is we should be praying continually through it for the Holy Spirit to guide us. It's unbelievable to think that Paul and Barnabas didn't do that. But Luke's certainly not leading us to think that they did. They had the disagreement, it was sharp, and they were done. And so what we draw from there is in the midst of our disagreements, before we start it, as we speak, and after it's over, we seek the Holy Spirit to guide us, to direct us, and draw us to His purpose, not our own. Not our own. The third one is this. This is where um, the goodness of God still shines through. So, it, it, perhaps you've, you've seen this over and over. Um, let me just read a couple things. Don't put it, you already put it up. You take it down, take it down, take it down. Don't let them see it. <laughs> They're going to just 
write it down and not pay attention to me. Maybe they're not. Anyway, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, uh, and verse, uh, this is Romans eight twenty-eight. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good and for those who are called together for his purpose. So in the midst of, of, of things, tragedy or bad things, the Lord can still turn these things and use them for good. Or we've seen this in Romans eight twenty-eight. We've also seen it back, way back in Genesis chapter 50, where the brothers had... Uh, had sold Joseph into slavery. It's just a terrible life for Joseph. And he looks at him and he says, but as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we know that in, in bad situations, the Lord can still take bad situations and sovereignly cause something good to come out of it. It doesn't mean that the bad situation was a good situation and that we're happy that it happened. It just means that he's good and gracious and has insights to the way things happen, that he can take that and actually make it positive. You can't, I can't. I'm really bad at doing this, but somehow the Lord can do it. And he does that. We should remember that as we're going through a disagreement, as we're going through something, this amazing Lord, whenever I mess up stuff, all the time can still take it and work it for good. And that's what we see here. Number three. You can put it up now. God is still turning all events to to to... His good purpose. And this is why. This is why. God works in spite of this disagreement. How did he do that? How did he work in spite of the disagreement? Well, the dream team broke up, yes. But here's what he does. Out of one missionary team to emerge. This is not the ideal way to go from one to two missionary teams. (laughs) This is not the way the Lord would draw draw it up, I don't think. But still in his good purpose. Out of one missionary team to emerge. It's not to be used as, as, as an excuse for Christian disagreement, though God can still use it. God's going to, in other words, hey, we can disagree because God's gonna, still going to turn good for this. That, that's not how you think about it. But still, nonetheless, it's comforting to know in my massive failures where I just blow it all the time. And, and, and the way I talk to my kids or the way I talk to my wife or the way I talk to other people. God, it's comforting to know that God can take those things and turn the events to his good purposes, even though I've just blown it big time. And so, another conclusion we can draw is, in the end, look to see God still do something amazing for his good purposes. It doesn't mean that we should seek these things, just so God can turn some good out of bad, right? But at the same time, it just commends to us, I think, the goodness of God, that even though... These kinds of things happen. The Lord will turn them to good. Here's the last thing. And this isn't directly from this particular text. But as you look into the rest of the New Testament, there's some mentionings of Paul, I'm sorry, by Paul, of Barnabas and Mark. There's some mentionings in his epistles. And so that helps me draw this last conclusion. It's this. Number four. Reconciliation should be sought. Reconciliation should be sought. I'm not sure from this text that they did. But as I look at the rest of the New Testament, I think that there was a reconciliatory moment. One of those two. It's either O-R-Y or A-R-Y. Reconciliatory, it sounds right, moment. Um, And no writer of the New Testament tells it to us. But... I want you to see a couple things. So this is happening and giving us in the book of Acts in real time. 
of how it was happened. I know Luke wrote it later, but he's given us a real-time history of this. And we know that after these events happened is when Paul wrote his letters. And so these letters that Paul wrote, specifically the ones we're going to look at, Colossians and 2 Timothy, especially 2 Timothy was at the very end of his life. I mean, he's about to die. He wrote these things looking back at his life, looking back at Ephesians, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 15, and writes these things. So the first one is from Colossians chapter 4. He says this. He's, he's obviously in prison. He says, Articus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. So he's, he's in a prison here. And whenever you're in prison for your faith, uh, it's good to have friends. It's good to have friends that love you, that care for you, to come see you. And this is what he writes. My fellow prisoner greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. All right, so... That makes me think there's been some kind of reconciliation with at least Mark, if not maybe Barnabas. And then he says, and Jesus, who is called justice, not the Jesus Christ, but Jesus, who is called justice. These are the, watch this, the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. And they have been a comfort to me. They've been a comfort to me. So these men that he's naming here in Colossians 4, with the name of Mark, saying, these men have been a comfort to me. So this is obviously later on in Mark's life. He's matured. Perhaps he's already wrote his gospel. He, when he went on that missionary journey with Barnabas, God growed him up, if you will. Um, I, I'm trying to not say if you will anymore because one of the little kids said, why does Fudd always say if you will in, the t- in his sermons? So I'm trying not to say that, but I just did it. So every time I say it, I think to myself, oh, Bailey's going to say, he said, if you will again. Um, but anyway, that's one. So we see that reconciliation happens. Now, the second one is this, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. This is at the very, very end of, the very, very end of Paul's life. And, and this, if you read 2 Timothy, he knows I'm about to die. He even says my life is about to be poured out as a drink offering. He knows at any moment he's about to die. And watch this. He's writing to Timothy, whom he loves. He says, do your best to come to me for Demas, who fell away. He's in love with this present world. He deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica. Christians that gone to Galatia, Titans to, to Dalmatia. Look at this. Only Luke's with me. But get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me in ministry. That is a great commendation by the Apostle Paul. He looks back and maybe he thinks to himself, maybe I'll too hard. But right now, I'm about to die. And that guy, Mark, he's very useful to me in ministry. So there's some kind of I think, reconciliation that has happened. Romans 12, Paul writes one, uh, at one point, Romans 12, 18, he says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. Now, it might be a stretch to say that reconciliation happened between Paul and Barnabas by reading these verses, although I don't think it is. It might be a stretch, I'll agree. But I don't think it's a stretch. We can infer, I think, pretty well that there was reconciliation or some kind of bringing back together between Paul and Mark. Between Paul and Mark. Because when when Mark left with Barnabas, surely he felt, I mean, Paul doesn't want me. Maybe I am no good. Maybe I won't be good at this. Maybe ministry isn't my thing. Maybe I should go do something else. And the Apostle Paul writes later, he's good for me in ministry. So we can, infer, we can infer that he wants Mark now to minister to him. Maybe John Mark just stepped it up. We don't know. But Paul gives him another chance. In Paul's older age, maybe he's just more grace-giving. Maybe maybe chill it out a little bit. We don't know. But we can, what we do know is that 
Paul wants to say, give me Mark. He's useful. He's a comfort to me in these last moments of my life. And he has some of those same traits of encouragement that his uncle did that I need right now when I'm about to die in a prison. He reminds me of Barnabas, I think Paul thinks. And so while we don't see the reconciliatory conversation between Paul and Barnabas, I like to think that it happened. I like to think that it happened. I like to think that Paul still held Barnabas in high esteem. Because if you read Galatians 2 where he says, even Barnabas gave in to like Peter. That means great Barnabas did what even Peter did. Not Barnabas even yet. I don't don't read it that way. I think he thinks uh, Barnabas is a great man. He just disagreed with him. And it was so sharp that they parted ways. But nevertheless, Mark was useful. So why, why reconcile? Reconciliation should be sought. Why? Why should it be sought? Because it adorns the gospel. Reconciliation is a picture of what has happened to us. Because God in Christ has taken already the ultimate initiative to reconcile with us. So we pattern ourselves after that. In Colossians chapter 1, talking about the ultimate reconciliation that's happened, it says this, For in Him all the fullness of God, talking about Jesus, was pleased to dwell, so God, Jesus was both God and man, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things. That includes us, not just creation, but us. To reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood shed on the cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So why should Christians reconcile? Because it adorns the gospel. It adorns, I like to think the Paul who wrote Colossians chapter 1 on our great reconciliation got to God, by the time he gets to Colossians 4, has thought about the reconciliation that's supposed to happen with John, Mark, and Barnabas and done it himself as he outlines this great reconciliation that man has with God, that he himself practices that himself with Barnabas and Mark. And so the reason why we reconcile is because it adorns the gospel. It it's, the gospel itself is this big umbrella over our entire lives. It's the way we read the Bible. It's, it's over our entire lives. And every act that we're doing should fall under this big gospel umbrella. And the way we talk to our wives and the way we treat people and the way we have disagreement all falls under. How does this look whenever I apply it to the gospel? And so that's why we reconcile. Martin Luther one of the commentators, as he was finishing up uh, his, his section on this, talked about Martin Luther and the absolute necessity for us to practice reconciliation with each other. But also, more than that, to have uh, been reconciled to God and understand what it means to know Christ and Him crucified. Luther says this, and this is how I want to conclude. Luther says, writing to a friend who was distressed about all of his failures. He looks at his friend and he says this. He doesn't, he doesn't address the failures directly. Instead, he addresses Jesus. He addresses this man's thoughts about Jesus. He says, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord, you're my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on what is mine and you set on me what is yours. And when we have 
a gospel-centered mentality of the entire way we live our life. Because God took the initiative whenever I wanted nothing to do with him to reconcile me to him and now present me holy and blameless, then that's the way I live out my life with other people. I learned to know Christ and I sing to him, you gave me all of your righteousness and you took all of my sin and you, you took on what is mine and you set on me what is yours. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. And it's exactly why we practice and go to the Lord's table every single week. But it's a, because it's a reminder of Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us and the great reconciliation that has been given to us. So as we go to the Lord's table now, as a reminder of this good news, as a reminder of this gospel, listen, think of this as we, as we go into it, remind yourself, all my hope is in Jesus. All of my hope is in Jesus. All of my sin has been forgiven. And now all of my hope is in Jesus. And that's how I want to live my life. If you're a believer in Christ, this time is for you. This is a time for you to think and pray. And when you're ready, you come forward, you get the bread, you get the cup, you come back, and we'll take it together. If you're not a believer in Jesus, observe as we take the Lord's Supper what's happening. Observe how we take the bread and drink the cup. Not because taking the bread and drink the cup saves us, but because we've already been saved. We've already been reconciled. And we're reminding ourselves of this great reconciliation that's happened. And we are able to, as we remind ourselves, because we need it constantly, able to go forth now and live a life that pleases Jesus. Live a life that worships Him. And of course we'll have failures. But when we do, we sing sing the great song that Martin Luther told us. Lord, you're my righteousness and I am your sin. You took what is mine and you set it on me what is yours. Let's pray. Lord, be with us now as we go to your table. I pray that the centrality of the gospel would be ever present in our minds. And that we'd be so thankful that your blood was shed, your body was broken, and that we are reconciled. And I pray that as we think about the great reconciliation that's happened, we would put into practice that in our own lives forgive me father when i don't do that forgive me father when my conversations with my wife and family and friends don't don't adorn the gospel they don't make the gospel look true in my life i thank you that your forgiveness even covers those things and i pray that all of us we put into practice these things and at the end we would look at other people like Paul looks at Mark and say that person's useful. He is useful to me. And Lord, that we would, uh, would have these things happening in our own lives. Be with us now as we're turned to your table. I pray that the, this gospel or this Lord's Supper would be a, a reminder of the good news of the gospel and our absolute dependence upon you. Praise in Jesus' name.